Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Bob Hughes, VP of Biochemistry at BioAge. Joining us today is Dr. Tom Random, Director of the Broad Center of Regenerative Medicine and Stem Cell Research at UCLA. Previously, he was a professor of neurology at Stanford University School of Medicine, director of the Glenn Laboratories for the Biology of Aging at Stanford, and the deputy director of the Stanford Center on Longevity. He is a pioneer in stem cell biology and the biology of aging. He's also the founder of a new company in the longevity biotech space, Fountain Therapeutics. Tom, thank you for being on the show. It's my pleasure, Bob. We'd like to start out a little bit with personal history. You were trained as a neurologist, but through the course of events, you became interested in muscle and stem cell biology. And obviously, you're a leader now in thinking about stem cell biology and how it impacts longevity research. And I was just wondering if you could comment a little bit on that journey from neurology to muscle biology, stem cells, and aging. It really dates back to when I was a, a resident in neurology at UCSF. I became interested in this group of diseases that neurologists see, which are the muscular dystrophies. Uh, I know that muscle is sort of the end of the nervous system in a sense, but those are problems of, of movement and strength that neurologists see. That was really what I started to work on when I started my own laboratory, is understanding the causes and treatments of muscular dystrophies. And in the setting of muscular dystrophies, the muscle degenerates, but then, as in many tissues in the body, there's a response to that degeneration where the tissue seeks to regenerate itself through stem cells in the tissue. And so that really led me to study more and more that kind of endogenous response to injury and led me into really into the field of stem cell biology. As time went on, we studied how stem cells repair tissues, mostly in muscle, but in other tissues as well, and began to ask the question as to why it is that we heal our injuries and wounds less well as we age, and pretty much across all tissues. And we develop, you know, kind of impaired regeneration and scarring instead of effective regeneration. So, so that's the kind of history that led me to stem cell biology and then to the biology of aging. And really now, a lot of our work is at that intersection of stem cell biology and aging biology. I've noticed from your publications that there's an emphasis on cell cycle regulation and the notion that resident adult stem cells gradually become impaired in their ability to re-enter the cell cycle. And this may be the basis for a loss of tissue homeostasis in the aging population. And I noticed that in one of your comments, you had made this distinction between deep quiescence, quiescence, and this sort of G-alert state. I think that was a bit of a neologism, if you will. Do you want to comment on this idea of cell cycle and the various aspects of cell cycle and how that plays into your thinking? It is a field that we got into really through the data that we were, we're seeing. I, I didn't come into this you know, with the idea that cell cycle was going to be important. 
But having said that, this is not true for all stem cells in the body. For many stem cell populations, they sit around in this dormant state that we call quiescence. So they're outside the cell cycle. They're not dividing. They're just resting. And they're kind of reserve cells there for when needed, for when tissue is injured or you know there's a disease. They then awake from this quiescent state, enter the cell cycle, divide, make lots of new tissue, and that's what their professional job is to do. But the more we studied these cells, the more interested we became in how they do this. How do they stay in this dormant state for weeks, months, maybe years, and resist the kind of damage that occurs in tissues and you know, damage to DNA and misfolding of proteins and other kinds of things that can happen? So we became very interested in just understanding how a cell can withdraw from the cell cycle and then reside in this state, but be prepared then very much for activating it and making tissue. So through that, we came to realize that this is a very dynamic and interesting process by which cells stay in this state, in this quiescent state, and that under different conditions and including aging, that state changes. And one of the things that we and others have, have clearly shown is that the older we get, the more difficult it is to activate these cells out of that state. And you can imagine that if a cell is dormant and you can't wake it up, it's not going to do very well in terms of repairing tissues. And so at least on some level, it is that depth of quiescence that occurs with age that we think leads to an impairment of the regenerative response in different tissues. There are a lot of these sort of injury models, recovery from injury, if you will, using cardiotoxin that attempts to model this age-dependent ability to re-enter the cell cycle. Do you think that these injury models are particularly pertinent to what's going on in normal tissue homeostasis in aged people? No, I don't. I think that what they do is they allow us to probe the state of those cells. It's not meant to model what's happening with age or model the process, for example, in muscle, the prominent feature that you see with age is the loss of muscle mass. And that really has nothing to do or very little to do with that kind of injury response that we use experimentally to test how deeply quiescent the stem cells are. The model of trying to study the normal process of aging is, of course, much, much more difficult. First of all, it takes a long time to do the studies. An injury model you can do and measure within days and a couple of weeks to really study what happens over the course of the lifespan of, say, a mouse, you have to do the studies for years. So while we use sort of artificial ways to activate the cells, like the kind of injury response that you referred to, we don't think of those as reflecting what happens with age. At least classically, we view the brain and adult neurons as being sort of permanently quiescent, if you will. And given your thinking about cellular aging with regard to neurons, we do have a very important population of cells that are meant to be, in a sense, permanently quiescent. And what is your thinking about that sort of neuronal persistent quiescence in terms of, say, late stage dementia? So I would make a distinction. You referred to them as permanently quiescent, and I understand what you mean in the sense they don't divide. But Generally, we think of, I would say the field generally thinks of quiescence as a state that is reversible by design. That is, the stem cells enter quiescence, they stay there, and then when needed, they exit quiescence, they enter the cell cycle. Neurons, 
by contrast, like cells in the heart, cardiomyocytes, or the cells in muscle that are the muscle fibers, they're what is called terminally differentiated, meaning they have exited the cell cycle and become very specialized cells that will never divide again. So they are not in what we would consider classically quiescence because that's reversible. They're considered what is terminally differentiated and therefore will never enter the cell cycle again, will never divide. So in that sense, when you see age-related changes in neurons or in heart cells or in muscle fiber cells, it really is the accumulation of damage in those cells which have no opportunity to repair themselves by cell division or to replace themselves by cell division. So it really is a different kind of biology of aging for these post-mitotic, that is never dividing again, terminally differentiated cells. It's quite different than the biology of, of quiescent stem cells. Well, it's actually been suggested that a late-stage neurodegeneration could actually be a result of these terminally differentiated cells apparently trying to re-enter the cell cycle. Are you familiar with that thinking? Sure. And that may be part of the pathogenesis of these diseases is you take a cell that is, again, by design, never meant to divide again, and somehow they get signals that are mixed signals to say, okay, now try and divide, and they're incapable of doing it. So it leads to all kinds of abnormalities in terms of the genome. And so, yeah, so that may be part of the pathogenesis. However, they do not end up dividing. They end up either being permanently dysfunctional or or actually dying in the process of trying to divide a cell that's not meant to divide. I want to move on to this concept, which some of our listeners will not be familiar with, which is heterochronic parabiosis. And I know that you were one of the early adopters, if you will, of this paradigm and the notion that you could conjoin the circulatory systems of young and old animals and see rejuvenating effects in the older animal. Can you explain a little bit about heterochronic parabiosis, what it is, how it works, what we've learned from it? Let me start with just explaining parabiosis in general, and then we'll get to the heterochronic part. So parabiosis as an experimental process has been around since the mid-19th century, a long, long, long time ago. That is experimenting with what happens if you surgically connect two animals together and they develop spontaneously the blood vessels from one animal who will actually grow into the other animal. So you don't need to connect their blood systems. They will spontaneously develop these connections in their blood vessels. So they develop a single shared circulatory system, like conjoined twins. So you have two animals that are connected. And this has been used as an experimental technique over the centuries, essentially, to explore how circulating factors might influence the physiology of an animal. So if you have one animal, for example, that has endocrine disorder, or what we now know as an endocrine disorder, and you connect it to another animal, then it's possible that the um, normal animal will cure the animal with an endocrine disorder because it will share the hormone that's missing, for example. So it has led over the many decades to increasingly interesting findings about the what's in the blood and what's in the circulation and has been instrumental in advances in endocrinology, immunology, all fields that kind of relate to, to cells and factors that are in the blood. The idea of connecting a young animal to an old animal, we didn't, weren't the first to do that. It had been used sporadically during the 20th century, just almost as a curiosity. There had been some studies in rats to ask whether 
if you connect a young animal to an old animal, does the old animal live longer or shorter? But they were done, very few animals and very kind of minimal studies, but intriguing. We realized in the, this was in the early 2000s, that we had some data from studies of stem cells to suggest that there might be circulating factors that were influencing the biology of those cells. And so we talked about doing different kinds of so-called heterochronic studies. So using young animals and old animals, so different ages, what heterochronic means. We did heterochronic transplants, and then we ended up doing these heterochronic parabiotic experiments, which are, as you said, connecting a young animal to an old animal. These were mice, and they are kept in these experimental situations for weeks. And during that time, we observed remarkable changes in the old animal as if the cells and the tissues were truly rejuvenating. They were getting younger before our eyes. And we and others have done So we did this initially in muscle and in liver, and then collaboratively in brain. And it's now been done in more than a dozen tissues, showing that the exposure to this young circulating environment of a young animal can actually restore youthful properties to old tissues. So really opening up kind of a a window of opportunity to understand what that biology is and whether we could take advantage of that therapeutically. Well, one question I always had about these heterochronic parabioses is there's always been this emphasis that the older partner, if you will, will be rejuvenated. To what degree have there been observations that the younger partner experiences some sort of accelerated aging through this paradigm? So, yeah, actually, absolutely. Uh, yeah, there's no free lunch here. What benefits the old animal hurts the young animal. And, and in fact, we had data early on to suggest that perhaps the dominant effect was the negative effect on the young animal or that aged blood factors might even dominate as a negative influence over the positive factors that might be found in young blood. So what you said is absolutely right. You know, this is a two-way communication and there clearly are factors in old blood that are suppressive to cellular function and stem cell activity. So that's equally an interesting area of pursuit is not only can we find positive kind of rejuvenating or youth factors in young blood, but can we identify and potentially eliminate suppressive activities that are present in the blood of of older animals and older people? One of the things that we're very interested in BioAge in terms of looking at blood factors that are associated with longevity is inflammatory factors. And, you know, there is this concept called inflammaging, which refers to the fact that inflammation is normally considered a protective feature of the immune system that protects us from infection, but that the inflammatory system, the immune system becomes dysregulated and we progress into these pro-inflammatory states where there's this gradual and pathologic elevation in inflammatory factors in the blood. I'm wondering if you think that from a stem cell perspective, the the progressive age-dependent deficit in stem cell mobilization could be related to chronic inflammation or inflammation. I'm not a big fan of the word. (laughs) We're stuck with it, I guess. But without a doubt, there's an increase in in inflammatory molecules in the blood, in the tissues of of older people. That's incontrovertible. You know, certainly most of those inflammatory cytokines negatively impact cell and tissue function. So 
while there may be some benefit to the innate immune response, even increasing with time, potentially, clearly they're having suppressive effects. And those are the kind of aging factors that I mentioned that are considered to be probably the mediators, or at least in large part, the mediators of why aged blood is suppressive for stem cell activity. I mean, a lot of this comes back to, I think, how we think of this from an evolutionary point of view. And you know, evolution and aging is an interesting topic for another day. But clearly, what happens to us as we get older, and as we get older, much older than was a typical lifespan of humans across evolutionary time, there are things that are changing in our body that were not selected for by evolutionary pressure. And, and one of those, almost certainly, is this gradual increase in inflammation. However, it may be that as we mature from childhood into adulthood, there may be a, a strong benefit in suppressing a lot of stem cell activity. There may be suppressing tumor growth, for example, or suppressing other kinds of changes that are beneficial. But over time, over the decades, as we get into middle age and older age, that just increases and then starts to elicit these features of aging that we see, which are associated with increased inflammation systemically in the body. From a development point of view, I don't know if she originated this concept, but uh, Judy Campisi at the Beck Institute would often say, aging is the price we pay for protection from cancer, that cell proliferation early in life obviously is critical when you go from being an infant to a fully developed adult. But later in life, you obviously don't want that to occur. One of its manifestations is tumor genesis or cancer. So there's really a delicate balance between protection from cancer and tissue maintenance. Oh, I would certainly agree with that. I mean, you know, again, if you think back evolutionarily, the default for a cell is to divide. I mean, we came from single-celled organisms, which, you know, the only reason why they exist as life forms is because they divide. And the formation of metazoans, multicellular organisms, initially were probably just collections of cells that continue to divide. This idea that organisms would have cells that would stop dividing, and the key cells that needed to continue to divide are the germ cells, so that you could have new generations of organisms, clearly had to involve mechanisms that evolved to stop cells from growing. In that case, anything wrong with that, those mechanisms would lead cells that were supposed to not divide to start dividing. And those cells have mutations, then that's essentially what we call cancer. So as we progress through development in childhood and into adult life, you know, clearly that cessation of growth is genetically programmed. There's no doubt about that. What happens after that is probably this combination of unselected, meaning evolutionarily selected processes that really were just part of this mechanism to keep cells from continuing to grow and, and keep organisms from continuing to grow. And so now that we live much longer, or if we, I mean, I often call this protected aging, that we form societies instead of living to be 30 or 40, we live to be 70, 80, 90. Same thing, we keep mice in laboratories. You know, they live much, much longer than they were supposed to live. In the wild, they don't live nearly that long or animals on a farm, or pets in our home. You know, so it's only through these protections against things that would otherwise lead to lethality in nature, starvation, exposure, thirst, you know, many things that lead to what's called extrinsic mortality, things that kill us from the outside. As we eliminate those by societies and laboratories and such, we reveal 
what can happen as we get older. And I think a lot of that is kind of a consequence of the genetic programs that just get us to adulthood and survival. Not to get too historical, but in the 19th century, August Wiseman came up with this so-called disposable soma idea and the idea that the body was essentially a vehicle for the gametes. And once the gametes, which are persistent stem cell populations in the adult, once the soma or the body had you know, fulfilled its function, it became disposable. It's almost hard to argue against that. I mean, the only reason why a species survives and thrives and, and continues is because of reproduction. And so, you know, it's not as if the germline has a mind of its own, but without a doubt, the selection has been for species that can reproduce and then survive long enough to reproduce again. So without anthropomorphizing this, the success of the germline is the success of the species. So yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think this disposable soma hypothesis makes a lot of sense in terms of how a species allocates resources, the way it's thought of, to either growth and survival on the one hand. So you have to have an individual grow and survive long enough to be reproductively active and then reproduce. And really, it's a shift in the balance between growth and reproduction that kind of characterizes the maintenance and survival of species. So I think there's a lot of validity to, to that. Maybe on a happier note, before we leave the concept of parabiosis, you had done some work on parabiosis experiments with exercise, if I'm remembering correctly, where if you take a exercised or a active mouse and parabiose it with a sedentary mouse, you can see the transference of the benefits of exercise. Is that an accurate description? Um, not quite, but close. <laughs> I mean, what we did was we didn't do parabiosis, but we did do blood transfusions. So the experiment was this, was we had old mice and we looked at their stem cell function. And we found that when we exercised those mice, their stem cell function enhanced dramatically. And we did this in muscle and we did this in brain. And this was again, that was done collaboratively with our colleague, Tony Weiss-Cord. When we, instead of just taking the animal itself that was exercised and look at its stem cells, if we took the blood from the exercised mouse and we gave it to an old mouse that had not exercised, we then saw the benefits of exercise. So clearly the exercise wasn't just the movements of the muscle, for example. Clearly there are factors that are secreted into the circulation again, you know, blood factors, in response to exercise that then are able to travel throughout the body and affect cells and stem cells throughout the body. So like I said, we looked at muscle stem cells, we looked at nervous stem cells, and we looked at some brain function. But you know, there's unequivocal evidence that exercise is hugely beneficial in delaying the onset of age-related diseases. And we really don't know, you know what it is about exercise that is beneficial. But I think you know that those experiments give us a window into asking the question, how is it that exercise can benefit tissues throughout the body? And really, is it through the secretion of compounds, maybe from muscle, maybe even from other tissues in the exercise setting that are leading to this healthier milieu that is benefiting cells and tissues throughout the body? People have used this term exerkines as a sort of a blanket description of secreted factors that are, say, released from muscle in response to resistance exercise. Do you have any sense 
for whether there are specific factors that are predominant as exerkines that convey these benefits? You know, there are proteins called myokines, which aren't necessarily related to exercise, but they're the proteins that are secreted from muscle. I mean, we don't historically or conventionally think of muscle as an endocrine tissue. You know, we think of, you know, the adrenal gland and the pituitary gland as conventional endocrine tissues that secrete hormones. But pretty much every tissue on some level is an endocrine gland in the sense that they secrete things. And muscle secretes proteins that have been termed myokines because they come from muscle, myo, and that are, are unique, that, that aren't you know, secreted by the adrenal gland. And when these proteins have been studied, they have effects on distant tissues. So in that sense, tissues are always talking to each other by what they secrete and kind of probing the environment that they're in, in terms of how the rest of the body is doing by responding to secreted factors from other proteins. So it's hardly a surprise to me that with exercise, not only those myokines, but maybe even, as you say, you know, exokines might be secreted in higher levels in response to exercise as a signal to the rest of the body that, you know, we're exercising. The body's now exercising and, and the, the physiology changes. You know, it, it changes fat metabolism. It changes blood flow. It changes all kinds of things. So it would surprise me, actually, if it were not the case that exercising muscle did not secrete factors that transmitted this signal throughout the body. So we're actually, we're looking at this right now. We're looking at what genes are turned on in muscle fibers in response to exercise and which of those genes are actually secreted proteins. I mean, this has been done. We're not the first ones to do this, but we're looking at this in a setting of exercise in old animals to ask, are there specifically factors that are secreted by old muscle in response to exercise that may be different than young muscle? From an interventional point of view, do you think it would be possible to identify one or two key factors that are released in the blood that convey the benefits of exercise and use that as a replacement therapy? I would be surprised if it were that few, but absolutely. I mean, I think that as we begin to understand what's called the secretome, which is the, the whole collection of proteins that are secreted from muscle in response to exercise, it won't be a surprise if we find factors that have specific effects on, on muscle metabolism and muscle hypertrophy and other factors that have effects on blood vessels and, and endothelial cells in the blood vessels and factors that have effects on fat cells and so forth. So I would be surprised if it turned out to be one or two proteins, but I would not be at all surprised to find out that there was a, a series of proteins of different potencies and potentially with different target tissues that are responsible for that kind of health benefit. And that could be recapitulated either by genetically engineering that protein for production or developing a drug that had an effect that mimicked that protein. So I don't expect there to be one pill that recapitulates the benefits of exercise, but I believe certainly that as we begin to understand this biology, it will be amenable to therapeutic intervention. Well, you know, when I think about the factors that influence aging, the big three for me are always genetics, which we have little control over, at least conventionally. There's exercise, which we've just discussed, and then there's diet. And I was wondering, I know that you've made some public comments about diet and ketogenic diet. Maybe you could comment a little bit on the role of diet as a controllable behavioral feature of taking control of longevity. Yeah, and I think it's probably the most well-studied and most touted 
behavior, you know, habit, <laughs> lifestyle choice that one can make that has been shown in animals. And this ranges from, you know, from flies and worms to, to mice and even primates that seems to be beneficial to health. And that is in a very simple minded way, the less you eat, the better. Obviously not to the point of starvation, but clearly, at least in most cases, in most situations, keeping a lean body mass predisposes animals to longer life and healthier life. There's still controversy about to what extent dietary restriction or caloric restriction, meaning just reducing the number of calories that you take, at what point is that beneficial? At what point is it harmful? Clearly, obesity is a major problem for health. And I think part of the challenge that we face in the field is that when we do experiments with dietary restriction, so we put animals, mice or rats, on a low-calorie diet, so they eat you know, 20% less calories or 30% fewer calories than their control cohort. The problem, or a problem, is that the controls are fed what is called ad libitum, which is you eat as much as you want. And we know what happens when we or animals eat as much as we want. It's not good. And so the real question is, you know, I think of everything in biology on a bell-shaped curve. And ad libitum feeding is harmful. And so restricting calories may be moving up that bell-shaped curve to the top, which is the optimum. And then the question is, at what point further restriction of calories becomes harmful as opposed to beneficial? It's a long-winded way of saying, I think there's no doubt that overeating is bad, that caloric restriction has benefits to both length of life and health during that life that has been demonstrated very widely in a wide-ranging number of organisms. We've been recently studying both ketogenic diets and fasting as a way to ask, no one wants to calorically restrict for their whole life. <laughs> I mean, no one wants to go through their life eating 30%, you know, being hungry. But the question is, can we again mimic the benefits of that through certain kinds of diets? And depending on what the diet is, what tissues are benefited and how. So we're interested in the biology, but we're very interested in this, you know, as you first asked, kind of what people can do on their own without drugs that might be beneficial in terms of dietary changes. Ketogenic diet is sort of scientific jargon, if you will. I think the way that that plays out in the popular culture is the paleo diet. Do you think that the paleo diet is ketogenic? I mean, the paleo diet is probably somewhat ketogenic, but you know, it's obviously based more on the concept of eating what we had evolved to eat, meaning that it's kind of aligned with our evolutionary biology. We're meant to eat protein and some fat. That's what our body is optimized for, or at least is evolutionarily selected for. I mean, ketosis, the state that you reach when you fast, for example, or if you really do eat, you know, high fat, high protein diets, you know, ketosis has been shown to have beneficial effects on lots of cells and tissues. So I think there's something to it. And the question I think that still remains is, are there downsides to a ketogenic diet? If so, what are they? And how much does a ketogenic diet actually recapitulate just caloric restriction, which doesn't necessarily lead to ketosis? I mean, it actually doesn't in moderate caloric restriction. But I think the challenge is how do you find diets that people can stick to that are both you know, health promoting and not onerous? I mean, it's just so hard to keep people on diets for a long time, as we all know that anything that we can do to, to find a healthy diet that is you know, palatable and, and sustainable 
and prevents obesity will be a good thing. What are your general thoughts on supplementation? Obviously, the anti-aging sort of health market, if you will, is always pushing this or that supplement. Do you, do you have any general comments on supplementation? I don't take any supplements you know, for what that's worth. I do, I do fast one day a week for what that's worth. I, I don't have any evidence that it's working or helping, but I just have a belief that it's probably good. I think that supplements are based on measurements that have, have been made in terms of what changes in our bodies over time with age, like NAD. They're clearly popular NAD supplements. But I think we just don't have the kinds of evidence of benefit that we would like to have in humans that this is really going to change our risk of disease and our general health span. So there's good evidence that most of these supplements that are touted, well, I shouldn't say most, I have not looked into the, the this spectrum of what's out there, um, which I'm sure is huge, but as long as they're safe and they're not taken in excess you know, they're mostly natural compounds, so they'll be incorporated like in a diet. And there is evidence in animal studies that these supplements can be beneficial. It's just that the higher up we get in terms of sophistication of the organism, the less effects these things tend to have. Even looking at caloric restriction, the benefits in lower organisms can be quite dramatic, whereas the benefits in, in primates is much more modest, and we just don't know in humans. So I think the same will be true of supplements. It'll be difficult to assess in a genetically diverse and complex population of people a significant impact on health span and lifespan from any kind of study. And again, there just aren't many controlled studies that are being done to really test these in humans. That was a very nice review of basic science and sort of interventions. You would just taken this post as the director of the Stem Cell Institute at UCLA. I'm just wondering how that kind of changes your perspective about what your remit is and having such a influential post. I mean, what do you foresee as the ultimate goals of being the head of such an institute? For me, the appeal of this position is to lead, you know, world-class stem cell center at a world-class institution, not only because I really love stem cell biology, but because it really is the promise of stem cell biology that we will develop stem cell therapeutics. And we already have stem cell therapeutics, but, but in a very limited way. And I think that this century will see the advent of stem cell therapeutics at the level of organ transplantations of the of previous century. I mean, so things that would have been unimaginable in the 19th century are done routinely now in terms of organ transplants. And I think the field of stem cell transplantation will move to that where we will be treating diseases and injuries and ischemic problems with stem cell transplantations and stem cell therapeutics. So my charge, my goal is to advance stem cell biology even more from the bench to the bedside and really develop these as first in human trials across a wide range of conditions. So like I said, we have stem cell therapies in the form of, say, bone marrow transplantation, which is routinely done, that is based on the idea that you can eliminate someone's diseased bone marrow, in the case of, say, leukemias, replace it with a healthy bone marrow, and the stem cells then can make blood cells for the rest of that person's life. So that is, in essence, a stem cell transplantation. We do this with skin grafts. You know, you can give someone a skin graft and it replaces the skin. But what really is important is that the skin stem cells are there to not only 
support the skin at that moment but for the rest of the person's life. But other than that, we really have very few options in terms of treating either traumatic injuries or ischemic injuries like heart attacks and strokes and degenerative diseases with stem cells. But I think that's the promise of this field. I think for me, it's an exciting opportunity to support that kind of research and recruit new investigators in the field and support young investigators for that future therapeutic potential. So here's kind of a sci-fi question. Obviously, bone marrow transplants were pioneered to cure people of cancer. Do you think there's a possibility that you could rejuvenate an individual by replacing essentially a youthful bone marrow transplant to rejuvenate an old person? It's an interesting question, and it's kind of a good Duncan experiment. Is as you transplant more and more and more of a person with youthful organs and tissues, you know, are they then a younger person? And, and I think that's the sci-fi extension of your question. You know, there have been these so-called heterochronic transplants, that is, in animals, where a young tissue like a bone marrow is transplanted into an older individual, and there does seem to be an improvement of function in that case. But does it last is the question. You know, is, is that something that a single bone marrow transplant or you know, a small number of cells compared to the whole number of cells in the body, is that a transient effect? And that over time, the age of the host, the person you know, or the animal receiving the transplant actually dominates and the quote young bone marrow or young whatever the transplant is becomes adapted to that older environment. So I think there's a kind of a time issue here, a temporal issue here of what you might see acutely after a transplant versus what you see over time. And I would say that overall, what we've seen in heterochronic transplants is that the host, in a way, dominates over the donor because the host has the whole body and, again, all these cells talking to each other. And the donor, for you know whatever tissue that is, is a small contribution to that overall age of the organism. One of the, you know, the final frontiers of aging research is late stage dementia, Parkinson's disease, obviously, Alzheimer's disease, and ALS, which is not a dementia, of course, but late stage neurodegeneration. What do you see as the possibility? Let's just take Alzheimer's as a for instance. What do you see as the possibilities of stem cell based therapeutics to treat or delay Alzheimer's? And how would one go about that? And how long do you think we have to wait until something like that enters the clinic? I mean, I think, you know, Alzheimer's disease is not the low-hanging fruit. That's for sure, right? It's a complex disease that starts decades before we even see signs of the dementia. So it's a challenge in that sense. And, and finding kind of these early markers of Alzheimer's disease, you know, decades before a person actually starts to show symptoms is going to be critical. It is not, in my opinion, a disease that is obviously a target for stem cell therapeutics because the cells are dying throughout the brain. I mean, there are regions that are particularly susceptible, but the idea of maybe replacing them with stem cells across the brain it just feels like that's not a target for stem cell therapeutics that I would put on my list of what's going to come first. I mean, so just to back up one step is that, you know, within the stem cell program at UCLA that I'm directing, I'm looking to build an aging component of that to study stem cell aging 
and then perhaps to branch out more and to kind of establish an aging center here. Because I think there's so much overlap between the regenerative biology of stem cells and the rejuvenative biology that we study in aging and, and with stem cells kind of at that intersection. So I think there's a natural overlap there. And when I think of Alzheimer's disease, away from the mainstream pathogenesis that people study, you know, beta amyloid and tau and so forth, is can we, from what we've learned about biology of aging, can we treat people, maybe this is pharmacologically, not stem cell therapy, in a way that enhances the resilience of their neurons? So it isn't that that we treat full-blown Alzheimer's disease, but we enhance the resilience of the neurons to prevent and resist the progression of this disorder. I see that as one way in which the biology of aging, studying the biology of aging, could lead to preventive therapies as opposed to therapies to cure diseases that are already full-blown. And to me, that's kind of the hopeful promise of, you know, of the biology of aging. Really, this field is that as we begin to understand what aging is and what it means for cells, can we use that, that information? And this is you know, what my company, Fountain, in a way works on, is can we find ways to restore youthfulness to cells, that resiliency that is why we don't get Alzheimer's disease when we're 20. There is some resistance to that kind of degenerative process that we then lose and we become susceptible in our you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And if we could actually develop therapies that were targeting that resilience, that were restoring youthfulness to ourselves, even to delay the onset of a disease like Alzheimer's disease by five years, 10 years, would have a huge impact and is not actually targeting the basic pathophysiology of the disease. So that's a perfect segue. Thank you for bringing up Fountain because <laughs> that was the last thing on my sort of to-do list when I wanted to speak with you. You founded a company recently, Fountain Therapeutics. Can you just give us some impressions about what it's like to transition from being an academic to a company founder and maybe describe what the sort of scientific goals are and how you will try and achieve those goals? In response to your first question about this transition, I mean, I, I never transitioned out of being an academic. I tried to start a company while being an academic, which was a challenge. And again, I, I have lots of lessons learned how not to do things that I would be happy to share with people. The thing that I did that was most difficult was I, I did this myself for a year or two before assembling the right team to help me do it. So, so I learned a lot about starting a company, but I would have certainly benefited by having people who already knew what they were doing um, from the beginning. I would have made fewer mistakes, but it was exciting. And I, again, I'm always supportive now of, of investigators in the academic world who have ideas for starting companies and, and trying to help get as many of those ideas out of the academy walls and into companies for development. Because there's just so many things you can't do easily in academics that are really you know, optimally suited for, you know, for that kind of environment of a, of a startup company. And found that it really was based on the, the early findings in parabiosis. That is the idea that the age of a cell could be reprogrammed, it could be modified, that you could actually make an old cell young and through, you know, what we consider to be kind of epigenetic reprogramming. So just kind of, you're not changing the DNA, but you're changing how the DNA is read. And that part of what aging is, of the aging of the cell, is misreading or alternate reading of DNA. So we believed from the parabiosis studies that this was possible. So what Fountain is doing is really screening for compounds that can make old cells younger in, in that very simple way. If we 
can identify what an old cell is and what a young cell is, and we can screen you know thousands and thousands of drugs to ask, do any of these drugs seem to make these old cells look, smell, taste like young cells? Maybe we are actually rejuvenating the cells. And that through that, by getting those compounds that work, we test them in mice to see if they have these kinds of benefits in terms of preserving or even restoring youthfulness in animals that have developing aging and age-related diseases. We'll bring it all back to neurology before we close. Okay. You stated that Alzheimer's disease was not the low-hanging fruit. If you were to make a prediction, if you think of the sort of the big three of the big four, PD, AD, Huntington's, and ALS, which do you think is the most likely to have a disease-modifying treatment in the near term, if you're willing to speculate? <laughs> Never make predictions, especially about the future. Is that one of those questions? <laughs> yeah, Yogi Berra. So Parkinson's disease is interesting because there are stem cell therapies being applied to Parkinson's disease. And in a way, it is a disease that lends itself to that because it's a very small area of the brain where the cells are being lost. And so, you know, through fetal transplants, you know, different kinds of transplants, there is evidence that you can actually restore functional nerve cells in the area of the brain that are lost in Parkinson's disease and lead to therapeutic benefit. So, so that's, you know, that's already encouraging. Then you mentioned hunting disease. You know, that's an autosomal dominant disease, which is genetically clearly identified what the genes are and that it's autosomal dominant. So that's a challenge. So I would say the four you mentioned, so I would say Parkinson's disease is, would have my bet in terms of a stem cell therapy. I guess I'm sort of bullish on ALS. I don't know why I say that, but maybe it's because the nerve cells that are lost in that disease are, again, restricted to motor neurons. And so, you know, perhaps there's, there's a biology there that is more tractable than the kind of widespread kind of neural death and degeneration you see in Alzheimer's disease. So I'd like to say I, I know what those will be, but I don't. I guess I'm still hopeful and optimistic that through stem cell biology and aging biology together, that these kinds of diseases will reveal themselves as targets for therapeutics that are probably beyond just the traditional pathogenetic processes that have been studied, but are approached from a point of view of cell resilience and cell state and cell function that can be enhanced therapeutically and maybe even pharmacologically. Well, I think we've come full circle. Dr. Rando, thank you for joining us and being so generous with your thoughts. My pleasure. So I'm just going to say many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at at bioagepodcast or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, Bioage Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time. Thank you. 